for years. When I, like in the 80s, late 70s, growing up in Baltimore, I'd be driving around town listening to the radio, and Paul Harvey would come on with, uh, he used to call it the rest of the story. Right. And these were five-minute mysteries served up through the lens of biography or history. And I can't tell you how many times in my car I would wind up getting to wherever it was I right. was going, uh -huh. but unable to get out of the car <laughs> until I heard Paul Harvey, you know, say, and now you've heard the rest of the story. So. Same here. Hi there, and welcome in to a brand new week on Celebrity Salute. Dedicated to the men and women who serve our country in active duty, our veterans and their families. We're here for you. God bless you. We love you. On each episode, we look for people and stories with some connection to these heroes. I'm Randy Miller. Mike Rowe is a television host and narrator. He's known for his work on the Discovery Channel series Dirty Jobs and the series Somebody's Gotta Do It, originally developed for CNN. He also hosts a podcast titled The Way I Heard It with Mike Rowe. And he's hosted and produced hundreds of episodes of Returning the Favor, a weekly Facebook Live series to honor veterans. And we are proud and honored to have Mike Rowe with us here on Celebrity Salute. This is exciting. Mike Rowe uh, is uh, you know, a big fan of Mike Rowe. Mike Rowe has been uh, uh, just about everything. He's done about everything, been about everywhere. You may know him from his uh, hit TV show on the Discovery Channel, Dirty Jobs. Mike Rowe joins us here in the National Defense. Mike, how are you? I'm good, Randy. Thanks. How you doing? Man, I'll tell you what. You know, you are, uh, if there's ever a definition of a cobbler, it's you. I mean, you you got so much going on and have have your entire life, right? I mean, from opera to QVC to, to dirty jobs and narration, you, you've just about done it all. Well, it's a very kind way of saying that I really can't hold a job. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, the evidence demands a verdict, and I am uh, guilty. <laughs> you know, I was checking out your uh, website, uh, micro.com, and there's a great podcast you do every Tuesday. Um, that is uh, it's called The Way I Heard It. New episodes every mm -hmm. Tuesday. I just listened to the latest episode called Render Unto Caesar. I mean, it's, it's a little bit, it kind of reminds me of the classic uh, Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. But um, it just a, it's a cool way to tell a story. And what got you well, into that? Well, you, you know, asked uh, and answered. Uh, it was Paul Harvey. Oh, really? I, yeah, for years. For years, when I, like in the 80s, late 70s, growing up in Baltimore, I'd be driving around town listening to the radio, and Paul Harvey would come on with, uh, he used to call it the rest of the story. Right. And these were five-minute mysteries served up through the lens of biography or history. And I can't tell you how many times in my car I would wind up getting to wherever it was right. I was going, uh -huh. but unable to get out of the car <laughs> until I heard Paul Harvey, you know, say, and now you've heard the rest of the story. So, same here. Yeah. I mean, so that's it. You know, I was, look, biography and history, uh, they take it in the neck these days. It's yep. a tough sell. But I thought if I can make them mysteries and write them myself and try and make them a little subversive, who knows, maybe there's an audience. And, uh, yeah, we've got, uh, we had 50 million downloads last year, which wow. I told is, wow. is, is good. So I'm doing more. And, and yes, I did sign up for blue apron. <laughs> 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 I mean, you got some great sponsors on this thing and, and you do such a good job. I mean, I think that's part of your, your, your talent, your ability, your, your gift is to, uh, is to sound so natural, uh, no matter whether you're, you're telling a story 
relating a, 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 some kind of a, a sponsorship message, but you do such a good job with that. How come you never got into radio? I mean, you've done everything with your voice except for radio. Um, you know, in college, I did half a semester of it, and I would have done a lot more, and I liked it. I liked it fine. But um, somebody came over and said, hey, would you do a stand-up on the local news station for a thing? And I thought, well, look, if I can get away with, with being on TV, uh, you know, I might as well do that until I can't get away with it anymore. Right. So, <laughs> right. you know, right. nothing bad to say about radio. Yeah. I just sort of, you know, put my finger in the air and figured out which way the wind was blowing. And, yeah, no. you and you went f- that way. <laughs> you were smart. You found out early. There's either, there's things you can make money with or there's a radio. Um <laughs> Hey, let's talk about what you, you, you've been a, uh, a friend of veterans for a long time, and especially through the Mike Rowe Works Foundation, the profoundly disconnected campaign. In fact, I got to tell you, you're one of the first guys, and maybe the only guy I've ever heard say this that makes so much sense about veterans uh, transitioning out, uh, that there's a boot camp for going into the military, but nothing for coming out. Mm, and and yeah. you, you just made such a, uh, a great career of that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, sure. I mean, for me, personally, it's always been about the reverse commute. It's mm. been about figuring figuring out a way to work in television where I could be a guest instead of a host, an amateur instead of an expert, mm. an apprentice instead of a master. That's my whole thing. Mm. And I was doing the 130 job. I wanted to do something uh, special. And I went to uh, Fort Jackson and worked with the uh, guys in the fixed wheel battalion. These are basically the best mechanics in the army. Right. And it was, it was one of the guys there who, who actually told me, he said, you know, the hardest thing is you know, watching these men and women come back who are highly trained, very skilled, but just not quite ready to immediately assimilate. You know, I mean, it's hard sure. to come back from a place where people are shooting at you and suddenly find yourself sitting across from an HR professional who has absolutely you know, nothing in common with your experience. Right. And so, you know, the more I thought about it, I do a lot of work with the Marine Corps here in uh, San Francisco. I was talking to the general over there, and he said, Mike, if you really want a story, you know, look at the, uh, look at the unemployment rates. This is back in 2009. But look at the unemployment rates for recently separated service people uh, compared to the national average. And I did, and it is scandalous. It's typically twice as high all the time. And back then, unemployment was, you know, 9%. So you had 22% of vets coming back who couldn't, couldn't assimilate, couldn't find work. And so, yeah, that, that's when I took the little foundation that I run and said, maybe maybe we'd be better served figuring out a way to take these people who already have the skills that are so such in demand, as well as the soft skills. You know, typically a vet understands, you know, you show up on time, you stay late, you tuck your shirt in, don't answer a phone call during an interview, all that basic stuff. Right, right. All that's in place. And so, yeah, it's not the only thing we do, but it is something that's important to me because, you know, I, I kind of feel like we owe it to them. Yeah, you know, and just to kind of underscore that, I was talking to a veteran the other day that, you know, he, he same kind of thing. You know, he comes out, he was driving uh, driving tanks and driving trucks in a military and shows up for a 
job as a truck driver, and the guy asked him, said, are, are, can we trust you with this equipment? And he says, well, I, I mean, I've been in charge of, you know, $25 million tanks. I think I could maybe handle, yeah. handle one of these. But, yeah. uh, but, you know, you were also, Mike, um, it, it just seems so commonsensical about the trade schools. You know, you've always been uh, a big proponent for trades as opposed to, or, or maybe instead of uh, a regular uh, classical college education, but it just, it makes so much sense because they've already got that training. All they need is yeah. sometimes the certification. I think part of the problem that we've fallen into collectively is this idea, this cookie cutter approach with respect to education. And parents are, are really guilty of this, you know, and understandably, we, we want what's best for our kids, and we don't know what's best for our kids. Yeah. So somebody has come along and told us, look, here's what's best, a four-year degree. Now, it also is true that <laughs> that path is the most expensive path. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and so what's happened is we've promoted one form of education at the expense of all the others. And my message isn't that a liberal arts degree is bad or a four-year degree is bad. I've, I've got one, and it served me well. But in 1984, when I matriculated, my total cost, both for a two-year community college and a university, was $12,500. Hmm. Today, it's eighty-four grand. Wow. So, you know, it's just too damn expensive for, for too many people. And because we just keep leaning on this one particular path, um, at the expense of the others, we've got a skills gap now. We've got 6 million jobs that currently exist. 75% of them don't require a four-year degree. They require training. In so many cases, vets have that training baked in, along with a work ethic that most companies are, are craving. So it's, a, it's, not a, it's not a mystery. It's just really a question of connecting the dots. And I don't know why... I don't know why more people don't talk about it or more people don't do it. I suspect there's money involved or politics or power or something. But I'm not running for anything. Right. I'm just <laughs> sitting back and watching. And to me, it's, uh, it's self-evident. But you know, that's how it used to be. I, I know when I, when I was growing up, everybody wanted a skill. Everybody wanted a, a trade. And I don't know when all of that went away, but, you know, $50,000 a year to go to Bucknell. Yeah. Well, look. <laughs> These are the dots I'm talking about. If you really step back and just put the broad issues on the table, under the education column, you've got $1.3 trillion of student loans currently on the books. Yeah. $1.3 mm. trillion. Over on the employment side, you've got record high numbers of four-year degree holders not working in their chosen field or not working at all. At all. That's got nothing to do with the unemployment number, but it's a really interesting stat it just because it goes right to the heart of what you paid for, what you borrowed for, what you majored in. What does that translate to? And never before has the correlation between what you studied and what you're doing been so low. And then in the third column, you I just call it the opportunity column, you have jobs not that are waiting to be created or brought back into the country. That's politically expedient yeah, right. and fun to talk about. But talk about jobs that actually exist, six million of them. So if you look at those three things all together, it, it, you don't have to be a genius to conclude that we're still lending money we don't have. Mm -hmm. The kids who are never going to be able to pay it back, 
to train them for careers that don't exist anymore. And that's crazy. <laughs> well, you know, and the term underemployed comes up a lot now with veterans where because when the when the new trend came out a few years ago that companies would step up and either voluntarily or uh, because they were forced to say, we're going to give all these jobs to veterans. We're going to give 100,000 jobs to veterans. Well, they'd never say what those jobs are. And so, you know, when the veteran comes out and he becomes a, uh, a checker or he's selling burgers or whatever, hey, we checked their box. The veteran's got a That's job. Right. And so then you, you get the, the term uh, underemployed, which isn't mm-hmm. re- reported on a lot. But I mean, like you say, this is this is somebody with a skill set that would demand ten times what they're making. They just got to right. find a way to get there. Yeah, you know, it's 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 tricky for me because part of where I come from is I I understand what underemployment is, and I completely support the idea of getting people working in a way that is more aligned with the skill set that that they have. Right. But I think what's happened, Randy, is with regard to to underemployment, it's become another very subtle, uh, clever, and oftentimes unintentional way of maligning work and opportunity overall. And this is what drives me nuts. You know, when when I hear the minimum wage conversation and when I see people working so hard to take the kinds of jobs you just described, flipping burgers, for instance, and saying, you know, it has to be worth more than what the company is paying. That's when I go, you know, I, <laughs> I'm sorry, but who says? Yeah. <laughs> you know, those jobs, those jobs, they weren't meant to be careers. Right, right. And, and you know, I understand why some people might feel or be, quote unquote, stuck in them. But it doesn't change the fact that a skill a thing that follows you wherever you go, whether it be plumbing or mechanical or electric or whatever, you know, those aren't minimum wage jobs. And you can make six figures. And most of the people who go through our program do. And, you know, it, it starts, though, in many cases, it starts with these underemployed opportunities that people dismiss. Those, those bottom rungs on the ladder... Those are important. You don't want to stand on them forever, right? But you need them to get to where you're going. Hey, Mike, let's talk about dirty jobs for just a second. I know. How many years did you do that? Hundred. Yeah. <laughs> one hundred years. years. He did dirty <laughs> jobs. <laughs> no, I did the show. We did uh, eight seasons. We did about 180 episodes, wow. which translates to uh, 314 separate jobs. Did you ever get hurt? Um, thankfully, you know, nothing catastrophic, right. but all the usual stuff, you know, concussions, contusions, stitches, couple broken bones, uh, the crew went, went through the same thing. Right. Um, not because the work we were doing was so inherently dangerous, but because if you combine a completely alien environment with a film crew, uh, who is completely <laughs> inexperienced <laughs> in wherever we happen to find ourselves? Uh, it's just this is bad math. That, you know, that's who I always felt. I always felt bad for the film crew. I could, okay, so Mike's going to go down in the hole, and now the the guy with the camera's <laughs> got to go down in the hole. 
<laughs> yeah, before I do, usually. You're right. You know, you want right. to shoot me coming in. Sure, yeah. So, now, look, that's, I mean, it's, it's a really good point, and I tried really hard in season one. It was difficult convincing the network that the crew needed to become a part of the show hmm. because filming dirty jobs was a dirty job. Right. And, and once, once that happened, once we were basically allowed to turn the cameras on each other, I knew that the show would stick around for a long time because ultimately that show wasn't just about, you know, how this works or, or what that person does. It was really a love letter to the business of trying, you know, trying a new thing, maybe failing, but having a few laughs along the way and, and learning some stuff. And it was a real so show. It, I mean, it was a real show. It was like, okay, I get it now. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a job. There's a guy that doesn't know how to do the job doing the job. And that's what was so mm-hmm. fascinating about it. You know, you see a, a show now like Undercover Boss, and you go, really? Uh, I, I don't, no. You know. Look, they, they, they actually called me. For that because that really? was one of that was one of thirty five shows that came out of Dirty Jobs. Yeah. Thirty five. Yeah. And you know, the networks got in on it too. Look, remember when Dirty Jobs went on the air, there there was no reality TV. There was Survivor. Right. Which right. was, you know, a, that was a competition show. But there was nothing on TV that actually functioned like a fly on the wall look at something. Right. And that's what we were. We never did a second take. You know, wow. you know, we we didn't always get it right, but we always got it real. But that and was that was the sure. fun part that you didn't get it right. Well, look if if I'd had to gotten it right, then I, I'd still be shooting. I mean, <laughs> we, we, it, the show would have never been producible because all of it was really an attempt to say, listen, there's a guy underground you've never met. His name is Gene Cruz, and he knocks out the bricks in the sewers that allow San Francisco to be a civilized city. You're never going to meet him unless we go show him to you. Right, right. So we would go and not only show him to you, we'd spend 12 hours and, and, and shoot him like he was Brad Pitt on Access Hollywood. <laughs> well, that's the that's uh, uh, exactly. And that was one of the brilliant part about uh, Dirty Jobs also. These guys became stars. And then... You know, so now you've got all these reality shows where, uh, where there's stars going in. I mean, you know, pawn stars. I mean, every you know, guys who uh, do things with uh, with rifle. I mean, just anything. And uh, and you're right though that Dirty Jobs kind of started all of that. Yeah. Look, I don't want the credit and I don't want the blame, but I can tell you, um, by the third season of Dirty Jobs. You could look around, and, and there was Deadliest Catch. There mm-hmm. was Swamp People, Swamp Brothers. <laughs> there's Ice Road Swamp Truckers, Woman. There's Axemen, Swamp Women, Swamp <laughs> Kid. I mean, literally, the, the, entire, the entirety of the cable landscape uh, tilted toward that kind of set, which I thought was great. What I didn't like was a lot of production companies got involved and didn't embrace the no-second-take mantra right and so they started producing these shows and what came out the other end and i say this with great respect but what came out the other end was duck dynasty and yeah. you know yeah. it was neither fish nor fowl i i, I don't know what it was <laughs> and you know i'm i'm happy for their success but you know <laughs> if reality tv was a great promise and a fantastic <laughs> concept. Great. But reality and nonfiction are no longer the same. <laughs> exactly. 
you got to listen to this podcast the way I heard it. New episodes every single Tuesday. And the way you deliver that podcast is very Paul Harvey-esque. And the stories are great. Uh, just a great idea. And, and obviously, people are, are latching onto that. Uh, anything well, come? They're anything? five minutes long. Yeah, that's yeah, the right. You know, that's the other good thing. Everybody's doing these hour, two-hour podcasts. I'm like, ah, oh, God. I mean, I love them, but who's got time? These right. are six minutes, five, six minutes. That's right. it. Mike, thanks for the time, man. I really appreciate it, and uh, good luck in everything. Randy, it's my pleasure. Have me back anytime. I'm uh, I'm around, and I and I appreciate what you're doing. And that's the rest of the story. <laughs> there you go. You've been listening to Celebrity Salute. Celebrity Salute is produced by Brainstorm Media and distributed by National Defense Network with host Randy Miller and executive produced by Nate Heron. Be sure to visit us at nationaldefensenetwork.com. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also say, Alexa, play the National Defense Network podcast.